we are often looking for the next thing, right? Because we know that it will be what will help us to get to the next level, whether that's a level of satisfaction or achievement, we're looking for that next level. Just wait until I finish my degree, we might say. Then I will have arrived. I'll get that job I've always desired. Just wait until we finally, we finally get that one bill paid off. Then, then we'll start moving towards financial security. I think most people have experienced that or something like it in life. It's like a long journey in a hilly area. You know what I'm talking about. You're, you're driving down the road and you're not sure if when you crest that next hill whether or not you'll finally be at your destination. And it feels like an eternal drive because every time you come up over that hill, all you see are more hills. But eventually, we do arrive. It feels like it's a long time, but eventually we're going to arrive at that place. Now the same feeling must have been going on for Abraham, right? That feeling that eventually he will get to the destination. God called him to leave his kindred and his country, and he was to head to a place that God would show him. And as the story has unfolded, we, we feel as though he will never arrive. He is living in a land that is being promised to his offspring, but for the majority of the story, he doesn't have any offspring. He is powerful. He has great possessions. But we never get the sense that Abraham has arrived, that he is in the promised land to stay. We are waiting for Abraham to crest the mountaintop and finally arrive at his destination. Well, last week, we, we looked at a moment that sort of felt that way, didn't we? We arrived at the birth of Isaac, and we saw the joy that it brought to Abraham and Sarah, and it felt like an arrival of sorts for Abraham had finally happened. The promise had been fulfilled. God, his God, was going to bless him. Well, God was faithful, and Abraham responded in obedience. So now we'll see that things are going to be great for Abraham, right? Well, we know, we know that the ultimate problem that the Bible addresses has not been taken care of in the birth of Isaac. The sin that entered the world at the curse is still haunting humanity, even though Isaac has arrived. So does the arrival of Isaac mean that the true child of the promise has come? No, it doesn't. Is Isaac the one that will crush the head of the serpent and put all things to right like we've seen promised in Genesis 3? Now we know that he is not. We know that Isaac isn't the ultimate fulfillment of the promise. There are a lot of pages left in our Bibles after this story. And those pages unfold with the story that shows us that the one who will save us from our sin is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as the story unfolds here in Genesis, we are getting a reminder that Abraham is not done. And he has not arrived. He is still waiting for the ultimate fulfillment of the promise of God, even though the promise of a child has been fulfilled that Isaac, even uh, when Isaac arrived. But he's still waiting. 
And so we're looking at a pretty big section of text today, and our goal is to see the big picture. So we won't be here with a three-hour sermon on this big chunk of text. We're looking at the big picture today, and we're trying to understand all this information that we're taking in and how it fits into the bigger story of redemption. To do this, we're going to break down this big passage into three parts. So the first thing we're going to see is that Abraham's past distrust of the promise of God creates conflict. We saw this coming, and it was foreshadowed after the birth of Ishmael. Sarah doesn't like that Abraham has another child, even though it was her idea. She doesn't like it, and we can understand that. And as we read in our passage today, she wants them gone. And we see that God tells Abraham to do as Sarah has requested. The second part we're going to look at, we're going to see that God is faithful to keep his promise to Hagar and Ishmael. Now, even though this whole circumstance was caused by unfaithfulness, it was caused by unbelief in the promises of God, God has still promised to make a great nation from Ishmael. And God isn't going to abandon the promise that he has made. Ishmael was not plan B for God just in case he couldn't get Sarah to have a baby in her old age. He's not going to abandon his promise. He is faithful, and he keeps his promises. He is God. And finally, we see that Abraham sojourns. He still hasn't arrived. He is making treaties, and he isn't staying put in the land that was promised to him. In other words, he knows that he hasn't arrived. And he understands himself that the promise that he's ultimately waiting for is still far off. And so with all that lined out, let's look at the section that shows us our first point regarding the conflict going on in Abraham's family as we look at verses 8 through 14. So as we come to this part of the text, the passage is helping us to understand that there has been a passage of time. You see, the last we knew, just a few verses earlier, we saw that Isaac had been born and everything was happy and people were filled with joy. Well, now we read about Isaac growing and he's been weaned. Now, this is clearly a significant thing in their culture because Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. This this was a big deal. Now, if you stop and think about it, though, it's probably similar to that little celebration that you may have had with your spouse when you stopped having to get up in the middle of the night with a child, right? We understand these feelings. It's an important passage of time. Or maybe it's that feeling of relief and that little dance you did when you no longer had to worry about where a pacifier was all the time. That was a great rite of passage, right? Or maybe we should take a little, little bit of advice from this story here I think maybe there should be a special feast in our culture when you no longer have to buy diapers for a child. That would be a great thing. Come to our home. We are no longer paying for diapers, so we shall pay to feed you. That just seems appropriate. But in any culture, you sort of have these type of things, these rites of passage. And what we're seeing here is that this has been some time that has passed in the life of of Isaac we know that the, give or take some time, but we know the amount of time roughly from when a child was born to when a child was weaned in the ancient Near East was about three years. And so that's plenty of time 
for the issues to, to fester and to start to rear their heads. And it was bound to happen with Ishmael and Isaac, wasn't it? Why do I say that this was bound to happen? Well, in their culture, it was the firstborn male who was the primary heir. They were the one who was to be blessed. But we know from the story so far that Isaac is the one who will be blessed. He's the child of the promise. And you and I know that this is going to be the way things are because we have a working knowledge of the bigger story. But imagine for a second being Sarah and living this out in real time. She has waited decades upon decades upon decades to have a child of her own. They waited and waited, and now it has finally happened just as God has promised. But now really put yourself in her shoes. She and Abraham are old, very old. What guarantee do you have that the two of them aren't going to die relatively soon? And it will be completely out of their control who the child of the promise is. Ishmael's older. Ishmael would be stronger than the young Isaac. And he'll have the ability to maybe conspire with the servants who remain after Abraham and Sarah die to worm himself into a position of power. So what does Sarah want here? She wants assurance that things are going to be okay that Isaac really will be the one who inherits, the one who is the heir. It's easy for us to look at what Sarah is saying and what she is doing and to think she is a nasty, terrible person here. But when you think about the circumstances, I think it's easy for us to put ourselves in Sarah's shoes, right? Of course, she has the promise of God. But we know how waiting on the promise of God has gone with Sarah in the past, right? And so the story unfolds here that she is wanting to take control, and she isn't resting on that promise. She sees Ishmael laughing at Isaac. Now, this might be a point where we, we would get a little confused in this passage. Isaac's name means laughter, so what's the big deal? Well, the idea in the passage is that this is a laugh of derision. She sees this as a threat. And again, with everything at stake, and with everything we know about their whole strange situation, I think it's fair to say that many of us might have fears similar to Sarah's if we were in her shoes. And we see here what she does. She tells Abraham to get Hagar and Ishmael out of there. Ship them out. And notice, she doesn't call Ishmael by name. She points to the status of his mother instead. He is not Ishmael. He is the son of that slave woman. There's no respect here. He is not Abraham's son to her. He is simply the child of a slave. Now, I, I can only imagine the pain that this must have caused Abraham. I think you're probably with me on this. How difficult would this be? If he was a modern man, he would have had to make an appointment to see his doctor about upping his acid reflux and uh, high blood pressure medication, more than likely. This is a stressful situation. But instead of visiting a doctor, he is visited by the Lord. And we get a somewhat surprising statement. God tells Abraham to do as Sarah has, has said. Now, I, I find this surprising. You, you would think the message would be that you need to deal with this. And you need to get these conflicts sorted out. 
But that isn't what happens. Instead, God confirms that the promise that is to come is to be through Isaac. But he also confirms that Ishmael isn't just going to be some forgotten slave person. We're reminded of the promise that God made that he would make Ishmael a great nation. And he does this because Ishmael is more than just a slave. He is a child of Abraham. And so Abraham gets up. He gives them food and water and sends them on their way. Not how I would have imagined it. Not how I would have probably done it. You you would think that there would be a little bit more provision for Hagar and Ishmael here. But this leads us to the second part of the passage. Abraham hasn't given much in the way of provision. And so as we move on to verse 15 and our second point, we're going to see that God is faithful to his promise to Ishmael. And we see that this provision truly wasn't enough. The, the water runs out, and Hagar is convinced that Ishmael's going to die. Now, now, one has to wonder, what does Hagar know? How much of this story that she is so deeply embedded in does she know? Because she's convinced that he's going to die. Does she know about the promise from God? And that is why Ishmael has always been number two? Does she know that Isaac is the one through whom the promise will come and, well, Ishmael is never going to be the child of the heir? Did she know this? Or was she expecting to be the primary, uh, for Ishmael to be the primary heir? We don't know. Well, let's be honest about what we've seen. Ishmael was treated like number two even before he was born. Does Hagar know why they have been sent away? Does she just think it's jealousy? Did Hagar have any idea that God had made a promise to Ishmael that he would be a great nation? And, and we don't know. We can't know. But it seems as though she was unaware of the promise because she doesn't try to claim it while they are dying in the wilderness. Instead, she just separates herself from Ishmael because she doesn't want to have to watch him die. You parents, you, you get this. You can read this story and feel this, can't you? Something bad's going to happen. I can't, I can't even watch. And we don't know much about what Hagar believed. You know, she was an Egyptian. We don't know what she knows about God. We know she was a servant of Abraham and the mother of Ishmael. But in the time of her distress, we see that she does, in fact, have faith. Because she lifts up her voice and weeps. She is in distress and she cries out to God. And as we have seen Time and again, God proves to be good on his promises. He hears the voice of Ishmael, and an angel delivers a message to Hagar. He will survive, she is told. And not only will he survive, but we read that he will thrive. This child who is alone and destitute in the wilderness will be a great nation. He will make it through this ordeal and have children upon children and descendants upon descendants. God confirms his promise, and now he lets Hagar in on it. And in that moment, Hagar is not only given a promise that is far off. This isn't just, now Hagar, believe that your son is going to survive because he's going to be a great nation. That's not all that happens. She is given something in front of her face. She sees a well, and she is able to give water to Ishmael, and he lives. God confirms the promise, and she shows it. He shows it to 
Hagar. Now our point for this section of the passage is that God keeps his promises. And yes, we see that he does that to Ishmael, but we also see a reminder here that the other promise that we've been tracking through the book of Genesis is for sure for Isaac. We've seen the promise to Ishmael, but now we're seeing absolutely Isaac is the child of the promise. We've seen it over and over, but it's being driven home once again because what happens? Ishmael leaves that area and goes to the wilderness of Paran. He doesn't try to settle in the promised land. And he also has a wife from Egypt. He is not continuing the line of Abraham to the promised one. And he will not be the one who will inherit this land. God has made a promise to Ishmael, and he will be good to do it, but it doesn't alter the true promise. The promise to Abraham, the promise to Isaac, the promise to Jacob, the promise to David, the promise that will eventually lead to the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who will crush the head of the serpent. That's Isaac. Isaac's descendant will crush the head of the serpent, not Ishmael's. And so as we continue through this section of Genesis, we come to our final chunk of text for today, and we see that in addition to the conflict, there's also another sign that Abraham hasn't fully arrived because he doesn't settle in the promised land. You would think that's what Abraham would do. He has his child. It's time to settle down in the promised land and claim the promise that God has given me. Well, there's a lot going on in this passage But as I said when we started, I I want us to see the big picture here and understand how this moves the story along. Now, we've come across Abimelech before. In fact, not too long ago, back in chapter 20. And he knows that God is with Abraham from those incidents. He not only had this whole experience of taking in Sarah, if you'll remember, and his whole household has their wombs closed, but he also has seen with his own eyes how God has blessed Abraham. This means that Abimelech does not want to mess with him. That's just the state of affairs. He has had an encounter with Abraham before, and he doesn't want to chance negative things happening again. So this time, he wants Abraham to make a promise that he is going to be honest with him. Remember, he was deceitful last time. Now, as we look at this passage, we need to remember the nature of the things in both of the stories of Abimelech. What were the two promises to Abraham? The first one was a promise of a seed, that he would have a child, that that through this child would all the nations of the earth be blessed. So the first promise was a seed. What was the second promise to Abraham? That he would have that specific plot of land. It was the land of the promise. His family will inherit that specific section of land. So now notice, The first time Abraham meets up with Abimelech, the encounter has to do with the seed. Now he's meeting Abimelech again, and what does the encounter have to do with? The land. So as I've mentioned many times before, so much, so much happens to the people in the Bible stories we read. They were real people with ordinary lives and daily activities, daily encounters, And so the parts of the stories that we actually come up against are there for a reason. The Holy Spirit inspires certain stories to be Holy Scripture for a reason. They are told to us to help us better understand what God is doing in history. And so the seed promise to Abraham has been fulfilled. 
And now there's a conflict pertaining to land. That's why this story is here. Will Abraham occupy the land? Will Abimelech stop him? What is going on? Will there be a struggle? Will it cause further conflict? These are the tensions that we we miss as 21st century American readers, but that's what's going on in the text. There's this idea, will the land promise ever happen? It's in question. We're meant to feel this tension as we immerse ourselves in this story of Abraham. And so we have this story. It feels strange to us and kind of out of place to our modern minds, but it's letting us know that the promise of the land hasn't been fulfilled yet. And so the original audience of Genesis would have been longing for that land. They would have been hearing these stories in the wilderness, longing to be the ones who would fulfill that promise to Father Abraham. And so this story shows something. It shows a treaty between Abraham and Abimelech. And there is a small conflict regarding a well, but they sort it out and they make a covenant. They agree to coexist. And what we see is that Abraham is able to dwell in the region of the Philistines. And it tells us, as the passage ends, that he dwells there for many days. And so the big point here is clear to us. He's in the land of the Philistines. That's not the promised land. He is in a land that is not his home. And the idea is that he is a resident alien living away from where he is really supposed to be. In other words, the promise of the child has come, but the promise of the land is not yet fulfilled. Abraham is an outsider. He is an outsider and has not yet fully arrived. And this is a big and important point for us as the people of God as we arrive in our application for this passage today. As sojourners in this world, it's so easy for us to think of this fallen world as our ultimate home. But we are called. We are called to look for another country and a hope that is beyond this life. So with that in mind, I hope to pass on two practical applications that you can take into the world with you this week. The first thing is something that we've been coming back to over and over in the story of Abraham, but it's so pertinent. Trust in the promise of God. That is, that is so hard for us to do because we naturally desire the things that are in front of us. The things of God for us are often intangible. The things of the world are usually quick. They're easy. They're right in front of our faces. But when we pursue the things of God, We often do not feel the benefits immediately, do we? Like Abraham, we pursue the things of God hoping for an ultimate promise that has eternal benefits. But this does not mean that there are not immediate benefits to trusting God and pursuing holiness, obviously. It's a mindset. It's trusting that whatever God has for me is better than anything the world can offer. It's believing that because God worked in history to bring us to himself, we trust that the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus is our only hope. It's knowing that we do nothing to merit what we are hoping for, but instead we trust that God delivers what he promises just as he always has. That just as he delivers the promise to the people in these Bible stories, he will one day deliver the promise to you and I. And it's something that we need to go to every day. When I say trust the promise, 
It means that we daily rely on the sufficiency of the gospel to bring us all the way home to that land that is distant and not in front of our faces that is our ultimate hope. And so for our second application, it is so important that we remember that we are sojourners. It's so easy for us to get comfortable here. So easy. But like Abraham, we have not arrived at our final destination. If we are content with the way things are here, then we aren't fully believing in the promise of God. Just like Abraham, we will never fully arrive in this life. We will not achieve perfect holiness in this life. But that doesn't mean that we don't pursue it and strive after it as we sojourn here. Because God blesses his people with his Holy Spirit who indwells us and accompanies us on our journey. He blesses us with our fellow sojourners in the church to encourage us and accompany us on our journey. And so we sojourn. And we move on looking for the ultimate promise, the final salvation of our souls and final glorification of our bodies. We walk in this life trusting in the promise of God, knowing that what we are experiencing now is nothing compared to what we shall experience in glory. And so may we trust God as we sojourn, that we might grow in holiness to his glory. And may we labor to share the good news that others may hear and join us as we sojourn this earth, waiting for that full promise when we will arrive in the ultimate promised land. Amen.